It's great to see you. Uh, thanks for being here this evening. As you sit, sit down, I wonder if you could grab a Bible that should be at either end of the pews, send them along to the middle so everyone's got a copy of a Bible, and turn to page 93. So Exodus chapter 34. Page 93, Exodus chapter 34. We're going through a, a three-week sermon series. This is week two, and the series is entitled, What Kind of God? And we're actually having the same Bible reading all three weeks. So if you're here last week, you may get a sense of deja vu. That is because it is exactly the same Bible reading. So Exodus 34 and verses 4 to 7. Let me read it. Page 93. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have sung, be high and lifted up, and that is our prayer now, that you would be high and lifted up as we look at your word. Lord Jesus, we pray that each one of us will get a clearer revelation of who you are, of what kind of God you are, and we pray by your spirit that as we get that clearer revelation of who you are, that you would be at work in us, that you would be breaking chains and freeing us, that you'd be transforming us, that you'd be encouraging us, that you'd be helping us. And we pray this for your glory. Amen. Well, someone uh, in the congregation who will remain nameless uh, came up to me sometime last week, and they said, thank you so much for your sermon last Sunday. It was brilliant. It was powerful. It was fantastic. I loved it. And then he paused, and he said, Actually, come to think of it, I cannot remember a single thing about it whatsoever. Which wasn't quite so encouraging. So, just in case he is not the only person, and some of you, you won't have been here uh, last Sunday, let me just give you a very quick recap of the first sermon last Sunday in this series. We looked at God, God revealing who he is to Moses on the mountaintop, on Mount Sinai. And we discovered that God revealed his name, the Lord. Yahweh, I am who I am. He is who he is. And this God, Yahweh, he fully revealed himself to the world in human form 2,000 odd years ago. Jesus Christ, he is the great I am. And the claim I made last week was this, that all other so-called gods, all other false gods, all other idols, whether it be a golden calf as it was for the Israelites as they were traveling in the wilderness here in Exodus, whether it be a golden coin, whether it be a God who we have made in our own image to be just like us, a God who doesn't confront us or challenge us or ask us to change, whether we, whatever that God might be, if we place that false God on the mountaintop of our lives rather than Jesus, that false God, that idol will devour us or disappoint us. That was the claim that I made. 
And I think there is quite a lot of evidence in our life to show that. Let me give you one example. Somebody I chatted to this week, he told me how his work in a typical city job, uh, in his work this week, his boss called him into her office. And his boss, she tried to challenge this person in our congregation that despite the long hours that he was working, despite the good work which he was doing, which she acknowledged he was working well, she challenged him that his work should be the number one thing in his life. That his work should be on the mountaintop of his life because as she looked at him and observed him, she saw that work was not the number one thing in his life. And this boss, she tried to get this person in our congregation, she tried to get him then and there to verbally declare in that moment that he would agree that from that point on, his work would be the number one thing in his life. And this person, he wisely and he bravely refused to say that. All other gods... All other things, other idols that we put number one, rather than Jesus, they will devour us or disappoint us. But here's the problem that we're going to be thinking about tonight, and it's this. Does the true God, does Yahweh, does Jesus, does he sometimes devour us or disappoint us too? Is he actually any better than all these other false gods? I wonder what you would say. Because I'm sure amongst us, there'll be many of us who will say, actually, at some time in my life, maybe right now, I feel that God is disappointing me, even devouring me. When we say a phrase like, I can't believe in a God who allows suffering, or I can't believe in a God who doesn't provide me with a job, or whatever it might be, I can't believe in a God who, there are two problems with those kind of statements. The first one we looked at last Sunday, in essence, the problem of our pride. By saying, I cannot believe in a God who, we are saying that what we think about God is the ultimate determinant of who God is and what God is like. And really, who are you or I to decide that? God, he has to tell us what God is like. We cannot decide it for ourselves. But there is another problem with those kind of statements. If you like, it's, it's the other side of the same coin. The problem isn't just our pride But the problem is also that we do not trust God's character. We don't trust God's goodness. We think that God will disappoint us or devour us. Perhaps we feel that he has. And let's face it, doubting God's character has always been the challenge. I'm just thinking back right to the beginning. Think about the serpent in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. He doesn't say to Eve, he doesn't say surely God doesn't actually exist. He doesn't challenge Eve about God's existence. He doesn't go that tack. He challenges uh, challenges Eve not about God's existence, but about God's character. Did God really say, says the serpent, surely you will not die if you eat the fruit from that tree, says the serpent to her. The serpent is challenging Eve over God's character. 
He's saying God isn't kind. God isn't truthful. God doesn't have the best, your best interests at heart. You cannot entrust your life to God. Don't trust, don't trust him. Don't be stupid. And the only way for God to silence our doubts and to answer his critics is for God to reveal himself to us. And today and next week, what we're going to see is God's self-revelation of his character. Last week, as we looked at verse 5, we saw God's self-revelation of his name, what he's called. And then this week and next week, we're seeing God's self-revelation of his character. This week, verse 6, and then next week, we'll look at verse 7. So just have a look, would you, on on page 93 and verse 6 that we're going to focus on today. Verse 6. And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And you know, HDC, we better take note of this. Because this verse, Exodus 34, verse 6, that we are looking at tonight, this verse is the most repeated verse in the entire Bible. The verse that comes more than anywhere, more, than, more times than any other verse, it gets repeated and repeated and repeated. And so it's got to be pretty fundamental when we are thinking about what kind of a God God is. So let's have a look at it. First of all, God is the compassionate and gracious God. Now, compassionate, that's a feeling word. Gracious, that is an action word. And both of those words, they have links to being a parent. God is saying of himself, he is saying he is the perfect parent. So compassion, uh, that is from a root Hebrew word, meaning female womb. It's the kind of feeling that a mum has towards her newborn baby. I wonder if you remember the story with King Solomon. With King Solomon, when there are these two women, and they're having a debate about this child. Whose child is it? Which of the two women uh, does this child belong to? And wise King Solomon says, well, it's easy. Let's chop the baby in half. We'll give you half each. And immediately, the real mother shouts, no, don't do that. Don't do that. Give the baby to her. Give the baby to her. Now, why does she do that? This is what the Bible records. It says this of her. She was deeply moved out of compassion. That's the same word. Out of compassion for her son. That is the feeling that God has towards you, a deep maternal compassion. So compassionate, that is a feeling word. Gracious, that is more about actions. It's the word used of a parent rescuing their child when their child needs help. One of my children the other day fell off uh, their chair during a mealtime. In fact, if I'm totally honest, they had already got off their chair about three times during the mealtime, and I was beginning to get a little bit irate that they wouldn't actually manage to keep sticking on their chair. And the fourth time it happened, they sort of slid off head first, and they sort of caught themselves on the floor with their hands. And there they were. They weren't strong enough to push themselves back up onto the chair, and they were sort of worried that they were going to fall onto the floor and hurt themselves, and they were there, stuck. And they were going, Dad, Dad, help me, help me. Now, what did I do? Absolutely nothing. <laughs> nothing. I just let them be there, serves them right for mucking around, let them fall. God is not like that. He is gracious 
He is gracious, rescuing us when we're in need. So what kind of God? He is the perfect parent. Second, God is the compassionate and gracious God. Next phrase, slow to anger. Now, I'm not a Hebrew expert, but I've read that this phrase, slow to anger, it literally means long of nostrils, okay? Long of nostrils. And for me, as someone who is personally, shall we say, nasally over-proportioned, um, I like that. I like that God and me, we've got something in common. We're both long of nostrils. But obviously, God is not meaning of himself that he's physically long of nostrils, but that is his character. That is his character. When we lose our temper, our nostrils flare as we let rip at someone. God is not like that. As the pastor John Mark Comer writes, he says, you can make God angry, but you have to work at it. And some of us, we particularly need to hear this, that God is slow to anger. God is not slow to love. God is quick to love, but he's slow to anger. And perhaps some of us here particularly, we fear that God is just out to get us, to condemn us, to judge us, to convict us of every wrongdoing, when the truth is he is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger. But there'll be others of us here in the room, and actually we need to hear that God is slow to anger. Perhaps we have made God in our own image. And that image is one of God being tolerant, being progressive. Anything goes, we think that God can never be angry at all. And so as we read the Bible and we read in the Bible stories of God's anger, we feel we need to explain them away. We think we need to update Yahweh for the 21st century. But the truth is that anger can be a very good thing. You know, if you didn't feel any anger about cyber sex trafficking or a terrorist bomber murdering hundreds of people, then that would be a concern, wouldn't it? The truth is we all know deep down that there is a right place for anger. We're just not quite sure where to draw the line. I mean, think about the top news item for office discussion this last week. The strictly come dancing pair who got caught snogging outside of a pub. Both of them with other relationships back then. One of them's finished. But some people, how did they react? Some people were angry with them. You know, wanting them to be kicked off the show straight away. Other people saying, get over it, leave them be, stop judging them. The truth is we don't know where to draw the line with anger. And the only way we can get an understanding of anger right is to look to Jesus. Jesus who reveals to us what Yahweh is like and we discover when it comes to anger that God, he is the perfect judge. What we see with Jesus is that love, at least love that Jesus spoke about, love can sometimes lead to anger. Fundamentally, God is love. God is love. It's not not God is anger. No, God is love. And yet God's anger is real. It is God's loving response to evil in this world. It is his holy hostility to all that is evil. We get a glimpse of it when we read about Jesus driving out the moneylenders in the temple. And we see that right anger in all its fullness at the cross as God in Christ takes this right anger at all our sin on himself in our place. God is the perfect judge. 
And then third, verse 6 says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and faithfulness. And that phrase, abounding in love and faithfulness, that is the language of a wedding. It's the language of a wedding. It's all about commitment and loyalty. And here at HTC, we, I mean, we have had so many weddings this year. All these HTC couples, I can see some of you out there, it's been so exciting. But none of the couples that have got married here at HTC this year, none of them forgot what they needed to say in the wedding. They didn't forget because they're very intelligent people, all of them, but also because it's very simple. There are only two words that you need to remember to get married. I will. That's it. Pretty simple. I will. Say I will in the wedding service at the right moment and you're hitched. I will. It's all you need to remember. And it's saying I will because in a wedding service, in a marriage, that the bride and the groom, they are forming a covenant They're forming a covenant of love and faithfulness, never abandoning the other one till death us do part. And really, the the whole story of the Bible, it is about God making a covenant with us. But the key covenant is, is right near the start, Genesis 12. Yahweh makes a promise with Abraham. And just look at what he says. It's going to come up on the screen. And just have a look at all the I wills in this covenant. This is what it says. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I will, I will, I will, I will. And you know, really, the rest of the entire Bible, from Genesis 12, it is all about God showing covenant loyalty. It's about God abounding in love and faithfulness. God being a faithful spouse to Israel. And Israel struggling to be a faithful bride in return. In fact, the reason that Jesus came, it was to do what Abraham and what Israel were supposed to do but never could. To bless, it says in verse 3, Genesis 12 verse 3, to bless all peoples on earth. Jesus was the one that could do that. In Jesus, God reveals himself to be the perfect spouse. But here's the question. Can you and I trust that that is God's character? I mean, think about Abraham, who that original covenant was given to. There's Abraham, when your wife is 90... And she's still not pregnant, and God has said, I'm going to make a whole nation through you. You might question the reality of God's abounding love and faithfulness. You might think, has God abandoned me? Or today, if you've been abused as a child, you might question the reality of God's abounding love and faithfulness. Has he abandoned you? Or if you've been diagnosed with cancer, you might question the reality of God's abounding love and faithfulness. Has he abandoned you? Or if you lose your job, you might question the reality of God's abounding love and faithfulness. Has he abandoned you? How can we trust God's character in the face of all our challenges? Well, we need to remember. We need to remember the content 
of this covenant with our perfect spouse. God did not promise you and me wealth, health, and a spending spree in Harrods. It's not what he promised us. He promised us what's in Genesis 12. He promised us that he would bless us so that we in turn might be a blessing to others, to the world. And that may mean that he focuses more on our long-term character than our short-term happiness. God blessing us does not mean that we will never face suffering and difficulty again. He is blessing us so that we in turn might bless others. Last week, if you were here, you'll remember that I spoke about, um, as I was speaking about how all false gods will devour us or disappoint us. I talked about if we worship money. We worship being rich. We will find that we are discontented. That we always feel like we don't have enough. If we worship health, we will find that whenever we get ill or get old, we find it far more emotionally crippling than it ever needs to be. We'll find that if we worship a particular person, that someday, sometimes, they will let us down. But sometimes we feel that God is no better. We feel that God is not providing us what we were hoping for in this life. Now, we will never know all the answers as to why this or that has or hasn't happened in our lives or in this world. But this is what we do know now. We know this. We know now that God is a perfect spouse he's faithful to us he's faithful to enable us to bless others we do know now that God is a perfect judge that God will ultimately bring justice and in Jesus the long-term eternal future is always better and we do know now that God is a perfect parent and he will do what is best for us his children Perhaps the most famous story ever told is of a parent and a child. Actually, a parent and two children. The the younger son doubts his dad's character. He doubts his dad's character. He thinks his dad is a spoil sport, a killjoy. He, He feels that his dad is devouring him and disappointing him. And so he goes and takes his dad's money and spends it in wild living. But what happens next? Well, he is devoured and disappointed by his false gods. The gods of wealth and sex and and being bad. And eventually this prodigal son, eventually as he's eating pig food, he comes to his senses and he heads home. And what does his dad do? Well, many of us, we will know the story only too well, and we sometimes just get numb to the wonder of it. But when his father saw him, what happens? This father is filled with compassion for his son. He runs to his son, he wraps his arms around him, and he kisses him. How about the older son? The older son also doubts his dad's character. He thinks that his dad is mean and unjust. And without leaving home, this older son manages to get as far away from his, fa- from his father as his younger brother ever did in the pigsty. This older son, what happens? He gets devoured and disappointed 
by his false gods, the gods of work and reputation and being good and moral. And what does the dad do? Again, the dad goes out to see him. Again, he speaks words of such compassion to him. He says, my son, everything I have is yours. You see, the dad, with both of his sons, both of his sons being devoured and disappointed by their false gods, his dad says to both of them, he says, please, would you come to your senses? Please, will you trust in me again? And the most amazing thing, this most famous of parables, the parable of the prodigal son, ultimately, it's not primarily about the sons at all. It's about the dad. It is Jesus telling the story. And Jesus is saying, this is his view of God. Jesus is saying, this is what kind of God God is. As he paints the picture of this father, this perfect parent, he's saying, this is what God is like. One that never disappoints, one that never devours, one that we can trust, one that has our best interests at heart, one that knows how to run our lives better than we know ourselves. Will you trust this God, Jesus is saying? Yet I don't know about you, but for me, so often, actually, I go, no, I'll trust my false gods. I'll trust the gods that I've made up, that I've made in my own image. Now, amongst us, some of us will find it difficult. Because of our own experience of our earthly parents, we may find it difficult to trust God. But this parent, God, he is perfect. Just as he is the perfect judge and he is the perfect spouse. And I'd love to finish just by looking at a verse in the book of Hebrews. A verse that has echoes of this bit, Exodus 34. And in Hebrews it says this. It says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. It doesn't matter. In the big scheme of things, it does not matter what has been going on for you recently. Whether it is the stinking pigsty breath of the younger son, or the prideful clenched teeth of the older son. Whatever it is for me or you that has been going on at the moment, whatever has been devouring us or disappointing us, we can approach God with confidence. We can trust his character. We can trust who he is, that we will receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. For God's arms are open, and the banquet is ready. Do you remember what happens in the parable of the prodigal son? At the end, they, they need to kill the fattened calf to make the banquet possible. And that calf is Jesus himself. Jesus is the parent, the judge, the spouse that has given his life for you so that you can approach his throne with confidence. 
Jesus says, I have given my life for you. Will you trust me with your life? Shall we stand and let's pray? Just as we stand, let's take a moment and ask God by his spirit just to continue to work in us, to work amongst us. Holy Spirit, would you continue to speak to each one of us? And just in the quietness, just come before the Lord. You'll know where he's been speaking to you this evening. And just respond to him. And very simply, if you feel that God has been speaking to you tonight, as we start to to worship God in song in just a moment, I'd love you to, to come forward. The prayer team are going to come forward in just a moment. I'd love you to come forward if you feel that God has been speaking to you tonight. And someone would love to pray for you. Maybe that you've been feeling disappointed with God. Maybe that you've been feeling that actually you're finding it difficult to trust God with all your life. Maybe some particular part, you, you know you're not trusting God with that part of your life. Maybe that just you're saying, actually, I long to receive mercy and grace to help me in a time of need. God's been speaking to you tonight. We would love to pray with you and for you. To come to God in prayer in confidence. So let's respond now. Some of the prayer team want to come forward. And if you want to be prayed for, please do just come forward now or during this next song. Just come forward and be prayed for.